This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, as we are back in the first epistle to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, and the title for the message this morning is Driven by Love. And the Word of God says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, once again we pray, Lord, that as we uh, prepare to look into your word and as we walk through these five verses from the opening of uh, chapter 14, Lord, we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you would direct our minds. Uh, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and that you would help us to understand rightly your word, to understand rightly the message of the Apostle Paul that was given to the church 2,000 years ago, but yet is still so applicable even today. Father, we pray that you would help us to take hold of of Paul's message and that by your Holy Spirit we would take it to heart and that we would rightly apply it to our lives. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So years ago, um, we lived in South Dakota for a few years, extremely cold which is why we came back to Texas, or at least one of the reasons we came back to Texas. And while we were there, uh, I remember there was a time when we were uh, visiting churches. We were looking for a church to call our church home, and we attended one church that um, many people spoke about. It was kind of an up-and-coming church. It was growing and doing a lot in the community. And so we went there. We sat in on one service, and the, uh, the, the pastor, the minister, began to deliver his message, and he, he started talking about Starbucks. And I remember thinking, that, okay, this is an interesting introduction. Um, I was shocked to discover, and I, I won't name the church, doesn't matter, but I was shocked to discover that the entire message was about the success of Starbucks and uh, how they have successfully marketed their product, how they have successfully uh, identified their target audience, how they 
have successfully gone after their target audience and, and uh, how they have really mastered the whole concept of branding. Um, the entire message was all about that. And at the end of it, the application was, as a church, we could learn a lot from Starbucks. And we need to follow their model so that we can reach more people. This is a common mistake that many Christians make, many churches make, many seminaries and Bible colleges make, and that is using books and literature from the business world. I've actually taken classes like that, um, where the professor gave one or two reading assignments, books or articles that were really written for the business world, but we could learn from their strategy. We could learn about how to organize, how to administrate, how to be successful and how to target the world. And so they use marketing and research strategies and tools. Many churches will use marketing and research strategy tools to study the community, to figure out what is the predominant gender and age of the community in which we are ministering in, to figure out how many people are married, how many are single, how many are widowed, what is the average income of the community in which we are ministering, what is the predominant industry in which people are working. And all of this is to use the information in order to determine how best to target our audience. Now, I want to be careful here and say not that knowing our community is a bad thing. It's not. We should know our community. We should want to know our community. We should want to know what they're like, what, what are their needs, how can we best minister to them. The problem is the more that we borrow from the business world, the more we tend to view the church as a business. And it becomes very easy to get onto that slippery slope where everything that we do seems to feel business or corporate-like. Because the church, the church is not a business. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. The church is an organism. The church is the living, breathing body of Christ. The church is the family of God. Now, I know that, see, the trouble is the business world will oftentimes use that kind of language, right? We're a family. You hear that sometimes, that kind of language comes out of Hollywood. You know, uh, people will have a successful running show for 10 years, and when it comes to an end, everybody's crying. They'll talk about how we were just such a close family on that show, and it's going to be hard to go our separate ways. But what they mean, and what Walmart means, when they say we're a family of employees, is that we're so close, we feel like family. See, but the difference is within the church, we actually are family. 
We actually are related to one another. We all have the same heavenly Father from which we come. We all share and possess the same Holy Spirit that indwells all of us. Just like in a physical family, you share DNA to some extent, we share the same Holy Spirit. We will spend eternity together as brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping God our Father and worshiping God the Son. The church isn't just like a family. The church is a family. Thus, the thing that should drive the church more than anything is not data. It's not marketing strategies. It is not research. The thing that should drive the church more than anything is love. Now, this is not to say that the church should simply be a group of Christians who stand around in a circle holding hands singing kumbaya, right? It's not just, it's just all about love, man. There are certainly other things we need to be engaged in. We need to be engaged in preaching and teaching the Word of God. We need to be engaged in praying uh, with each other, praying for one another, ministering to one another. But love must drive everything that we do, and it must drive the why we desire to do it. Why do we desire to do what we do? It's not so we can just grow. It's not so we can just have more numbers. It's not so we can just do more in the community. It's not so we can just do more for one another. It's driven by love. Why do we do what we do? Or why do we want to do the things that we want to someday do? The answer should be love. We just love each other. We love God. And we love the world. This is Paul's point here that he is making. You know, Paul has just spent an entire chapter discussing the importance of love. He now returns to the topic of spiritual gifts. But notice how he begins when he returns to the topic of spiritual gifts. Pursue love. Pursue love. He ends chapter 13 by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is because love is eternal. Everything else, all of the other gifts that we, 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 we have, that we use, that we talk about, tongues, prophecy, even administra- administration and mercy, on the new earth, there's not going to be a need for mercy because nobody's going to suffer. We don't need to administrate or organize anything. There won't be a need for tongues or prophecy. Love remains forever. So then he begins chapter 14 by exhorting them to pursue love. So even as he returns to the topic of spiritual gifts, he reminds them, Above all else, in other words, he wants them to keep this at the forefront of their minds. 
that even though we're going back to the topic of spiritual gifts, don't forget that at the forefront of your minds, the thing that drives all of this is love. In other words, as we return to the topic of gifts, pursuing love and doing everything through love must be paramount. It cannot be on the back burner of the Christian life. It cannot be on the back burner of any church. Because, as he says in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I'm not doing this through love, it's not being driven by love, I'm not using it out of love, Paul says it's pointless. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, Paul says. It's interesting that now Paul is about to talk in, in great detail about tongues and prophecy. He began chapter 13 by saying, if you have the gift of tongues to an amazing level and prophecy to an amazing level, but you don't have love, you're wasting your life. And now in chapter 14, he's going to go into great details about the gifts of tongues and prophecies. But he begins chapter 14 by reminding them, pursue love. Why is that so important in the mind of Paul? Because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And knows God. If you are a loving person... That is an indication that you know God. Then he says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John's point is that you can't possibly know the God of love. You can't possibly be in an intimate, loving relationship with the God of love if you're not a loving person. If you don't truly love people, and you don't truly love God. Thus, whatever services Paul is essentially going to go on to talk about in chapter 14, whatever service you may in, be involved in within the church, whatever talents or gifts you may have that you may be using for the church, if it is not being done out of a heart of love for God and a heart of love for people, then you are clearly doing it for selfish reasons. You clearly are not doing it for God's glory and therefore it is meaningless. In the grand scheme of things, it's meaningless. But Paul doesn't want them to just pursue love. 
While love is preeminent overall, there are two other items that Paul exhorts them to pursue. Notice chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul wants them to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and prophecy. Here is a command that we don't take seriously enough because the word earnestly in the Greek is in the imperative. It's a command. Do this, in other words, Paul is saying. Do this. Pray for this. And we're not just talking about the miraculous gifts. You know, when we talk about spiritual gifts, that tends to be what comes to mind most of the time. The gifts of healing and miracles and uh, prophecy and tongues. But Paul wants them to earnestly pursue all of the spiritual gifts. Gifts like wisdom and knowledge and faith, discernment, teaching, the gift of helping, administrating, serving, exhorting, generosity, the gift of leading, so on and so forth. That's only a snapshot of all of the many gifts that are listed in the various places in the New Testament. So Paul says, earnestly desire, do this. Desire the spiritual gifts. Why does Paul exhort his readers to do this? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he's already mentioned that. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. So Paul is saying that the gifts are given, the gifts exist, Christians have spiritual gifts for the main reason of building up, of edifying, of blessing the church. It's not just for bragging rights. It's not just so that we can say, oh, I have this gift and you don't have this gift. Right? I'm more spiritual than you. It's so that we can minister to one another. And especially, Paul says, that you may prophesy. That you may prophesy. Well, what is prophecy? Because when we hear that word, prophecy, or when we talk about prophesying, we tend to think of Old Testament prophets. That makes sense, right? You have Old Testament prophets, and yes, the prophets in the Old Testament did prophesy. However, it is important to note that those with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament do not carry on the office of Old Testament prophets. They are not the same. When you read about New Testament prophets or people with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, uh, they do not by default, now sometimes they do, the apostles do, but someone with the gift of prophecy in the New Testament does not necessarily carry on the office of prophets from the Old Testament. And I'll give you five reasons why I believe this to be the case. Number one, New Testament prophecy is not speaking authoritatively as the Old Testament prophets did. New Testament prophecy is not, thus says the Lord. This is God speaking to you and you must obey. 
That role of speaking authoritatively on behalf of God is given to the apostles. The apostles. They may have different names, prophets and apostles, but the office and the function is the same. The apostles carry on the office of Old Testament prophets. And we know this because of one verse that I think is extremely significant. And to me, it just ends the conversation about having apostles today or people that speak, thus saith the Lord today. Revelation chapter 21, we're described, we're given the description of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and its foundations has 12 pillars. And we are specifically told that by John that he saw that the names of the 12 apostles were written on those 12 pillars. In other words, there are only 12. Because if there were more, then why not the rest of them? Why not all of the apostles that have existed having their names upon the foundation? John is very clear. There are only 12 apostles given to the church, and it is upon the work of the 12 apostles that the New Testament church has been built. So there are no apostles today, and there are no prophets today as they existed in the Old Testament. Number two, New Testament prophecy uh, is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. We see that, for example, in Acts chapter 21. There, some of you may remember the story of Paul making his way to Jerusalem, and he is stopped by a New Testament prophet by the name of Agabus, Acts chapter 21. And in verses 10 and 11, we read this, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, a prophet named Agabus. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his feet and his hands, and he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus says, The Jews are going to bind your hands, and they're going to hand you over to the Gentiles. Yet we read in that same chapter, verses 30 to 33, Scripture says, Then all the city, so now Paul is in Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. So these are all Jews. All of these Jewish people, they ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and, it, uh, at, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, and all that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He, that is the Roman, uh, the Roman um, military officer, at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, arrested Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he acquired who he was, and what he had done. So what actually takes place is not that the Jews bind Paul and hand him to the Gentiles, but that the Gentiles rescue Paul from the Jews, and the Gentiles are the ones who bind Paul's hands with chains. 
Under Old Testament criteria, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, Agabus likely would have been put to death. His prophecy was in the ballpark, but it wasn't quite accurate. He was off on the details. But they don't stone Agabus. New Testament prophecy clearly is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. Thirdly, Paul is content to ignore New Testament prophetic utterances because he understands that New Testament prophecy is not, thus saith the Lord. And so Paul is content to ignore New Testament prophetic utterances. You see in Acts chapter 21, again, verse 4, Paul making his way to Jerusalem, Scripture says, And having sought out the disciples, he stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, listen, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They were telling him. This is what the Spirit says. Do not go to Jerusalem. Yet what is Paul's response in verse 13? Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since they would not, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. You see, in the Old Testament, you would never disobey an Old Testament prophet. New Testament, you don't disobey an apostle. Here you have New Testament prophets who are telling Paul, the Holy Spirit has told us, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm going. I am going. Okay. Lord's will be done. Fourthly, New Testament prophets are under the authority and care of the elders. Right? In the Old Testament, who did you listen to most? The prophets. Even the kings listened to the prophets, right? Just ask King Saul. To disobey a prophet is to disobey God. You listen to the prophets. You're under their authority because they speak on behalf of God. To disobey Moses is to disobey God. But in the New Testament, who is the authority within the church? It's not the New Testament prophets. It's the elders. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, the elders, overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. New Testament prophets are under the authority of the elders and pastors. And fifthly, New Testament prophecy is not ecstatic and is subject to examination. It's subject to examination, right? Uh, what Paul said was not subject to examination. Paul spoke authoritatively on behalf of Christ. He wrote his New Testament epistles. He is an apostle. We take his words at face value, but not New Testament prophets. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 to 30. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. So two things we learn. Number one, New Testament prophecy is not ecstatic. It's not beyond their control. Right? People, you hear Christians talk about that the Holy Spirit took a hold of him, he just started prophesying. But that's not how it works, according to the Apostle Paul. And New Testament prophecy is subject to examination. Is this real? This really true? It's actually from God. You don't just take it at face value. Thus, the gift of prophecy seems to be a divine impression or insight that falls short. It falls short of thus says the Lord. So Paul wants them and us to pursue love and to pursue the spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy, he says. Why especially prophecy? Two reasons. The first reason is given in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but, utters, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, so that's the first reason, but first of all, before I explain verse 2, let's review the gift of tongues just for a moment. Number one, the gift of tongues also is not ecstatic, right? It's not something that the Holy Spirit just takes control of people and they just start speaking in tongues and they can't help themselves, they can't control what they're doing. We know this from chapter 14, verses 27 to 28. There, Paul writes, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, uh, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone, and each in turn. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself. So they can control it. They can keep silent. They can take turns. It is something that can be uh, controlled. Number two, tongues is an actual language. Even if it is an angelic language, which is not an earthly language, but even if it's an angelic language, nonetheless, it is an intelligible language on some level. It is not just babble and sounds. It has meaning to someone. Because in the end, that really just all language is, Right? You study language or talk to a speech therapist, and what is language? Language is nothing more than a series of sounds that have meaning to someone who understands the meaning of those sounds, right? To someone who doesn't speak English, I'm just making noise. But to those who grew up speaking English, the sounds that come out of my mouth have meaning, and you understand them. So it is a language, because Paul talks about them as a language. 1 Corinthians 14, 10, and 11, he says, There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be as a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Right? None without meaning, even the gift of tongues. He talks about tongues as if it is an actual language because it is an actual language. 
where we first see it is in Acts chapter 2, reporting out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They all started speaking in tongues. To some people, it was just noise. It's just gibberish. But to others, I understand what he's saying. He's speaking in my language because I understand that language. So the sounds make sense. But to someone else, the sounds were just noise. They don't make any sense. But it is an actual language. It says Paul will argue that speaking in a different language under the influence of the Holy Spirit is only beneficial with an interpreter. Without an interpreter, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't benefit anybody because no one understands what you're saying except for God. Thus, the first reason Paul wants the church to pray for prophecy is that it is most easily benefits the church. It most easily benefits the church. Without an interpreter, tongues is simply pointless. It's just pointless to the church. Reason number two that he wants them to pray for prophecy is in verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who prophesies does three things for the church. He upbuilds, he encourages, and he consoles. This certainly would have been the effect of Agabus's prophecy on Paul. Even though Paul doesn't listen and he, he goes to Jerusalem anyways, nonetheless, uh, the prophecy that was given to Paul by Agabus would have given Paul an opportunity to prepare for what lies ahead, right? Paul would have been given the opportunity to prepare mentally and spiritually, maybe praying more, maybe even fasting, knowing that, okay, I've been told something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. And he prepared himself for it. So even there, prophecy for Paul had that Effect. This is really the point of New Testament prophecy and really of all of the gifts, of all of the gifts. Notice Paul does not say the one who prophesies gives instruction from God for your life. That's not what he says. Right? He doesn't say the one who prophesies will speak to you from God exactly what you're supposed to do. I mean, wouldn't that make the Christian life easy? I just go find someone with the gift of prophecy. Should I take this job or not? Right? Tell me from God, what am I supposed to do? But that's not the point. Rather, the point with the gift of prophecy and really with all of the gifts is that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, Paul says, for their encouragement and for their consolation. For this reason, Paul says, seek after and pray for all of the spiritual gifts, but especially the gift of prophecy that you may upbuild and encourage and console the church. In verse 4, Paul then summarizes the two reasons that he just gave. Notice verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And we'll talk more about that later in the chapter, what he means that the one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself. But the point that Paul is making is the one who speaks in a tongue without an interpreter really is just praying to himself and to God because no one has any idea what he's saying. Right? Because whatever, whatever it is, it's an intelligible language. So it would not be any different 
from maybe a visitor from a foreign country getting up in, in, in front of the church or, or maybe even at a prayer meeting. And you may have experienced this. You may have been at a prayer meeting and someone begins to pray in a language that you don't understand. You know that they're praying, but they don't speak English. So they're, they're praying in their own language and, and you're encouraged that they're praying, but you have no idea what they're saying. So it just, it doesn't, it doesn't help me at all. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to praise God with you, whatever you're saying. And I hope you're praying for good things because I have no idea what you're saying. And so the person who prays, so without, without the, the one who speaks in a tongue without an interpreter really prays to himself and to God. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. The one who prophesies builds up the church. And that is what love does. Love, love in the end says, it's not about me, it's about you. Love says it's not about doing what is best for me or what is most convenient for me. It's about doing what is best for you. Love is wanting and doing what is best for someone else regardless of personal cost. Thus, love says, if I'm going to pray... If I'm going to pray for a spiritual gift, I am going to pray for the gift of prophecy so that I can uplift and encourage the saints because I love the saints. Because I love the saints. Paul now ends with a qualifying statement in verse 5. He says, Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more... To prophesize. So he's qualifying what, what he has just said. You know, Paul doesn't want to diminish the gift of tongues. He doesn't want to diminish the importance of the gift of tongues. And so he, he comes back around in verse 5 and says, Look, don't misunderstand me. I wish you all spoke in tongues. I really do. I would like you all to speak in tongues. But given the choice, Paul says, I'd rather you prophesy and not speak in tongues, which is, which is very interesting because in a lot of your more charismatic Pentecostal-type churches, tongues seems to be the one that's driven more than anything else. Paul says, I would rather you have the gift of prophecy than the gift of tongues. And here's why, end of verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Without an interpreter, the gift of tongues does not benefit anyone. But the gift of prophecy simply has greater benefit for the church. In the end, Paul's point throughout this entire first section is this. Christians should pursue love above all else. That's why he starts there. Right? That's why he starts there. He doesn't want his readers to get lost in the weeds. Yes, the gifts are important, tongues is important, and prophecy is important, but Christians should pursue love above all else, but should also pray for spiritual all of the spiritual gifts. Especially certain gifts. Because the gifts enable us 
the spiritual gifts given by God, by the Holy Spirit, to the church, enable us to put our love more effectively into action. That's what the gifts do. That's their point. They enable us to put our love more effectively into action for the church. In other words, we should pray for all the spiritual gifts, but not just for the sake of having them, not just for the sake of wanting them, not just for the sake of knowing and being able to tell others, but so that we might more effectively love one another. That's Paul's point. You should want a spiritual gift. You should want God to give you a spiritual gift so that you can more effectively love the body of Christ and love the world. You know, ultimately, this is what Paul has been driving at from the very beginning. You know, people read the book of 1 Corinthians and they, they talk about it. And oftentimes, they talk about the one thing, they, they don't talk about the one thing that Paul is driving home the most throughout the entire book. Love. Love. Do you realize that love, the word love, appears in some form in the book of 1 Corinthians 17 times in this book? 17 times. From the very beginning, it's in almost every chapter. We're in chapter 14, 17 times it appears in this book. Because what Paul is trying to get them to realize is that all of the problems that they have, right? You go back to the very beginning of the book and we can sort of scan the chapters. He started with talking about all of the various divisions that are in the church and there shouldn't be various divisions in the church. He then goes on and talks about how there's, there's sexual immorality in the church and none of you are doing everything about it. And then he talks about the fact that they're taking each other to court and they're, they're suing one another. And then he talks about the principles of marriage is how they don't understand marriage and they're not relating uh, husband and wives. They're not relating correctly to one another. He then talks about uh, idols and eating food that is offered to idols and how they're not being considered about one another and considered about one another's conscience and their consciences and he, he talks about not providing for those who minister to the church and, and not providing for their needs and he talks about engaging in idolatry and he talks about the head coverings and how women are not adorning themselves properly in church. He then talks about the Lord's Supper and how it's being abused within the church and what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth is that all of these problems is because you don't have love. Love is missing. And when there's no real love in the church for each other and for God, you're going to have all kinds of problems. The church is going to be a mess. Love is preeminent. It has to be preeminent in the church. It has to be preeminent in the Christian life. And it can't just be about doing and about works and about reaching and about organizing and about viewing the church as a business. It has to be, love has to be the thing that drives everything that we do, that is behind the reason for everything that we do. Otherwise, we're just going to end up spinning our wheels. We're going to end up spinning our wheels. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, we pray, we plead, we beg that you would help us to be a church that is driven by love. Many of us in this room know what happens when a church is not driven by love. We've seen it up close and personal, and it is an ugly thing to behold. This is what was going on in the church in Corinth. All of their divisiveness, all of their nastiness, all of their taking brothers and sisters to court and suing each other. They simply weren't loving each other. Father, I pray that we would be a church that truly loves, truly, truly loves each other. That we want to do what is best for one another. That we are willing to sacrifice to do what is best for one another. That we would be a church that truly loves you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Father, we pray that we would be a church that above all else would pursue love. Not theology, not reformed worship, not a bigger church. Father, I pray that we would be a church that first and foremost pursues love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.